Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract. Today's special guest, Glyne Roberts-McCabe. Glyne is the founder and president of The Roundtable, an institution here in my home country of Canada and other parts of the world. It's a company that helps leaders navigate change, disruption, and growth by building the mindsets and behaviors that matter most. She's a very sought-after expert in the field of group coaching, which we'll cover and touch on today, working with executive teams and high-potential fast trackers to make a bigger collective impact. With over 30 years of leadership business and coaching experience, Glein combines an evidence-based approach with pragmatism. Glein has advised and worked with senior executives and high-value leaders globally at some of the world's most respected brands. She's the author of two Amazon best-selling books. I have them both, The Grassroots Leadership Revolution, and Did I Really Sign Up for This? And she writes for The Globe and Mail, HR Reporter, Canadian Manager Magazine, and Training and Development Magazine. But here we go, folks. Her personal mission is to inspire ambitious leaders to connect to their bigger purpose and passion so that they can lead with intention and leave a legacy of good. Now, Glyne, welcome to our show. This is you and me today. Um, I want to start first looking ahead. So it seems like um, we are coming up to soon the anniversary of the pandemic, which is what, the 13th year anniversary? It seems like that, doesn't it? <laughs> Feels so, like that. So I'm curious with your wonderful expertise and experience and what you've been observing the last couple of years, what are we, I suppose, needing to look forward to? Well, like what's that trends perspective under the belly of leadership? Let's start there and we'll maybe we'll tackle a couple other questions. So what's 2023 in store for, for us as leaders? Um, well, thanks, Dan, for having me on the show, first of all. And I have to give you huge props on your vocal variety and variation. I loved how you especially said my book, did I really sign up for this? Because that's exactly how it was intended. Um, I think in terms of leadership, it's kind of bad, right? It's like, did I really sign up for this? I think that what we're going to see more of in the next 12 months is leaders continuing to be I'm going to use the word burnt out. I think mm. what we're starting to see is a Gen X evolution revolution um, in terms of where they're going. I think this is what's fascinating me right now is we're going to see, I think, a lot of leaders, senior level, senior level um, X leaders in particular, who have made it. They've, they've got to the top jobs. They've had their big careers. And I think when we, you know, everybody's been, I know you've, you've been talking about this a little bit um, in terms of this whole quiet quit and the big quit and the this quit and the that quit. I mean, <laughs> we used to call it work to rule. I don't know <laughs> these expressions, right, that we had. But I, what I'm seeing, which is fascinating, is that there's a band of leaders that kind of don't need to do this anymore because financially they've made it, they've been at the top of the house and now they're making different choices with where they want to spend because they're, you know, mid forties, early fifties, they've still got some good runway and they're going to do things differently and on their own terms. So what does that mean for organizations? That's a problem because this is going to be a lot of IP that's going out the door. So I think the trends that we're seeing and, and certainly I am, a huge proponent of so I I get people are going to be like line you're drinking your own Kool-Aid here is that we really need to shift away from this heroic leadership model that we've had so ingrained in our organizations for years we have to get our heads wrapped around the idea 
that one leader cannot be everything. And if we don't start creating these strategic networks, ways of building collective leadership, curating collective intelligence within our leadership groups, um, we're going to be in trouble. So I think that's one of the big trends is how do we do that? And how do we get leaders to move away from the don't let them see you sweat to, hey, it's okay to let them see you sweat. And in fact, we're all sweating here. And wouldn't it be great if we could all kind of lean into this experience together? So I think that's one of the big top ones that I'm seeing and that's going to continue to happen. Let's uh, let's delve deeper into that, if you don't mind, Glenn. And, and one of the avenues I wanted to discuss with you kind of tends <laughs> to parlay the point about burnout. And, and I guess what predates that potentially prior to the pandemic was the hustle culture. And so tell me a bit about what you think where the hustle culture and this heroic leadership point that you bring up going into a pandemic when we then, aside from frontline essential workers, tell everyone to go work from home. And now as we're trying still to unpack the, well, what is the right balance between work from home, uh, work remotely, if you will, and then work from the office. How does like what we got into before the pandemic affecting where we're at right now in the psyche of kind of what leaders need to be thinking about? Well, I think, you know, what the pandemic has done is really shed a lot of light on, frankly, the lack of leadership and the lack of focus that exists within organizations. Mm. So I think what we see people struggling with is this overwhelming priorities and too much to do. And then we've got, you know, all the chatter about productivity isn't where it, where it should be. Um, and, and we're not getting innovation that we need. And so the, the solution is to bring everybody back into the office. And these are like, these are like lazy solutions. These are, this is, this is sort of the Let's put the check mark uh, beside some tactical activity as opposed to putting some thought into what are we really trying to solve for here? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing for leaders that, you know, there's such a, there is a fast pace. And I think the, the challenge, I think, that exists for anybody, especially if you're working in a, in a large company where, let's face it, it's profit driven, it's numbers driven. Um, you, you know, there's a big movement right now about being human centered, like we need human centered leaders, because that's what in the pandemic, we needed leaders with empathy, and everybody needs to have empathy. Yeah, but you know what, you also need to drive results, you need both. I mean, this is the this is truly the reality. And yet we have a lot of constructs and organizations that are very outmoded and outdated, you know, it's mm-hmm. built on the military model, it's built on command and control, it's built on it's built on time. I'm in chair equals productivity. And we know it doesn't. So what I think the challenges for leaders to have are the right conversations around what are the results that we need to deliver? What are the things that we need to absolutely hold our our feet to the fire on and make sure we're getting done and then have the courage to say, you know what, the rest, it's not going to matter. And, you know, that 50, 50 page PowerPoint deck that you put together for every XCOM meeting or every, you know, senior leadership, guess what? Nobody remembers those PowerPoints <laughs> next week, never mind next year, right? So we have so much glut in the system. And I think, you know, like our brains like patterning, we like being on a routine, we like doing all these things. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I think the pandemic what's happened in the pandemic is you've had people sort of be able to step away from it. You've had people get again, some more free time, not commuting, things like that. And people not willing to go back 
to that pace anymore. And in many ways, organizations have lost a bit of the grip and the power that they used to have and now have to step up to actually put their money where their mouth is and do things a little differently. Um, so I think there's a lot of that's going on. I, I sort of felt like, you know, as you know, I did a sabbatical for two months this year and I, yeah. I was saying to somebody, I felt like after coming back into it, I had been that boiled frog that was in the pot that actually escaped and then was being pushed back into the boiling pot. Mm. And I went, wow, what are we, what have we, uh, you know, done to ourselves? It's almost like we've given ourselves a lobotomy around what is, what is, what does work need to look like and what is work. And, and, you know, when you step away from it from a, for a bit, which I think a lot of people have done over the last two years, I think you, I, I think I saw you sort of talk about the great reflection. I think, I think that has caused a lot of organizations to struggle right now because they have, you know, they're trying to solve with the check mark and the quick, easy process, get you back to work, do this, do that. But it's a bigger systemic thing that we've got to be answering questions about. Well, you and I um, are of the same vintage, which means we've <laughs> uh, we've been around the sun a few times. Now, uh, you know, a decade-ish ago, we were yammering on about row and results-only mm -hmm. work environments. Like, it seems very much like you're describing what Best Buy and a few others were trying to do a decade ago, then scrapped it, and we haven't heard anything about a results-only work environment any longer. So why, why can't we resurrect the idea, Glyne, about how we really should be creating cultures and leaders whom are, are not only crafting a more humane and caring type of culture, but one that says, look, it's the results we're after here. Like we do need EBITDA and profitability and growth, et cetera, but we can do it in a more caring way. But let's just focus on the results, not the 50-page PowerPoint at eight-point font. Or that you need to be sitting at a desk in, in a cubicle to be able to deliver that result. And I think, right. no, I'm a big fan of row. I mean, we run a row at the round table. You know, Jody's a, a good friend of mine. I think the hardest thing about row, quite frankly, is there is a lot of leaders out there that, let, let's face it, aren't good at giving feedback, aren't good at hold, holding people accountable. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, our, our research partner did a research study a few years ago, and then they, they kind of replayed it. And they wanted to see if a leader is good at balancing both people and results, does that actually make them more effective? And the answer was resoundingly, yes, it does. And then they wanted to see, so how many leaders out there do balance both very um, well? Mm -hmm. And the resounding answer was, not many. <laughs> Like Shock. when they first ran Shocking. the survey, it was actually less than 1%. I think it was 7% oh, of a 60,000 person survey. Now, I think rerunning it, they got a little bit higher, but it wasn't higher than 5%. I think it was 4 point something percent. And, um, you know, Matthew, I think Matthew Lieberman was the gentleman's name. He wrote a book about it called Social and, and the yeah. fact that we're social creatures. And that was where he pulled a lot of that research from. And it is very difficult for us to balance both that results drive and the social drive in our brains. You know, he calls it the neuro seesaw. And I think that's the thing that, you know, I see. So the leaders that struggle with giving tough feedback, holding people accountable, you know, not holding people accountable results have their own set of challenges. And on the other side are the folks that drive for results at any cost, uh, create toxic environments because they're not thinking about people. And I think that's just... That's why for me, leadership is all about self-insight. You got to know yourself. 
And you need to know what side of that seesaw do I tend to sit on? And if I sit really high on one, well, then I've got to be hyper intentional about creating more balance <laughs> on the other side, right? Listen, you're uh, wise and experienced. And one of the things you've pioneered, I would argue, at the roundtable is uh, group coaching. And I mean, you just recently won, you know, a Best in Advanced Leadership Award through the Brandon Hall HR Excellence. So kudos for you and the work you've done you. at PepsiCo Foods Canada. Now, I, I'd like to ask a question, and that is when, when you're trying to describe group uh, coaching, when you compare it with leaders whom are used to one-on-one -on -one coaching or executive coaching, how yeah. do you delineate the three? And then the obvious follow-up question is, why is group coaching so cool for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you think there's group coaching, there's team coaching, and there's one-to-one -one coaching, and I'll always get, well, what's the difference between group and team? So let's start there. Yeah. So with a team, like a team usually has a shared goal. We're all on the marketing team. We've got a shared goal. We're all kind of moving in that direction. And as a team coach, which I also do, that's what we're focusing on. We're focusing on, though, the kind of the development of that team together. Like, how do you get better working relationships within a team? With group coaching, you're typically bringing individuals from across an organization together. So it could be somebody from supply chain, quality, HR, you know, marketing into a group. Every individual has their own goal, but there is usually some umbrella overarching goal that they're all moving towards. So whether it's improving leadership performance, I mean, most of our programs, we're working with the leaders that are on that succession plan, and we're trying to get them ready for their next promotion. Individual coaching can be all over the gamut. And, and you know, everybody, you know, there's different specialties in coaching. Certainly our specialty when we do do individual coaching is in behavioral coaching. Mm, so how yeah. to help leaders kind of uh, shift and sustain a new behavior. Um, but that's how the three kind of break down. Okay. Um, why I got passionate about group coaching was there was a couple of reasons. I mean, I think for me, I was fascinated. This goes back to 2000. I was fascinated mm. by the fact that CEOs had these peer groups. So at the time, Young Presidents Organization, the, the executive committee, those kinds of groups. And I'm like, why would a CEO, busy, busy person, want to spend a bunch of time with a group of peers? What mm. are they getting out of that? And so I really started looking into those kind of mastermind forums, those sorts of groups. And I thought, why isn't there something like that for the mid-career person? But I also recognized at the time that um, you know, there was some structure that was required. There was this, and and I th I think particularly you know, what were the options back then? It was, well, hire a coach one-to-one -one or jump into a experiential program, go do some trust falls and some, you know, those kinds of uh, leadership programs or, or go off for three or four or five days at a university type program. And yet, and you know this, Dan, because of all the work that you've done. I mean, you don't become a great leader in two days. You don't become a great leader in, in a, an offsite. Um, and, and I felt that was where coaching was very powerful because you could work with somebody over time. But group coaching was like, I could, you could work with a group over time who were all similar to you and that, you know, they had similar ambitions, similar, similar stage of career but had different styles of leadership. And I think the philosophy that we have very strongly at the round table is that leadership is situational. And mm -hmm. what's going to allow you to be a hyper successful leader in one environment could be actually your downfall in another, because every strength you has 
have has a corresponding liability. And so when you bring leaders together and they're exposed to other leaders who have different ways of thinking about things and different ways of looking at things, and you're all going through a bit of a prescribed curriculum together, um, you're going to grow and evolve together as a group, but you're also getting at that all important connectivity, like mm. that's those strategic networks, those that, you know, I find it interesting, the buzzwords that get going like psychological safety, you know, as soon as that uh, Google uh, report came out, they coined that, or they made popular that term yeah. psychological safety, I thought, oh, geez, that's what I've been seeing going on in roundtable programs for years. I just, yeah. you know, didn't have that label for it. But it's because when you're a leader and you're vulnerable with your peers and you realize you're not in this alone and leadership doesn't have to be lonely. And in fact, like any problem, you know, five heads are better than one and getting different perspectives and views on different leadership situations can be really empowering and, and also validating in some cases and also change your point of view in other cases, how powerful that was and how sustaining it was. Like I think in L&D, we've always sort of struggled with how do you make it sustainable? How do you make learning sustainable beyond a classroom? And I think to do that, you need it over time, you need it to be integrated and, and you need it not to be your idea, if that makes sense. I think the more Anybody who's in a program can take ownership of that learning for themselves and truly own it and own it with each other. And you as the coach or the facilitator being really on the sideline to the process, yeah. I think the more powerful that is, right? Well, it sounds to me, at least, like group coaching has this sort of triple play of awesomeness, right? You've got... <laughs> Well, you've got the the programmatic nature of it, i.e. there's a pedagogy, a curricula, and it's, um, you know, uh, curated over a period of time. That'd be number one. Number two, obviously, with that, uh, there's an accountability. So it's not a one and done. You know, there's an expectation for you to contribute, to delve deeper, I suppose, than a one and done. And then thus, Mm -hmm. hopefully, your competence is increased and it becomes more systemic or learned. So it's a behavior change as opposed to a dump of content. And then number three, as you've pointed out rightly, Glyne, is obviously the, the creation of potential other networks or relationships, which then reinforces both the program and the accountability. Am I, is that a fair assessment in terms of my... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I think it's absolutely fair. And I think the other piece that we get to um, in that third wave is we start to get into systemic change. So when you think mm-hmm. about whenever I hear organizations that are going through change and they're you know, they need to, what they're actually trying to do is shift mindsets. You know, we need, I'll hear people say, we need uh, our folks to be more accountable. You know, it's a favorite word or uh, agile. That was another big word the last yeah. couple of years. Let's ever get everybody agile. Well, first of all, we have to break that down into, well, what are the behaviors that they're demonstrating right now that aren't agile? Um, and I'll, and maybe I'll use a live example. I've got a client right now that wants, wants their leaders to be more collaborative. And so what that means is, hey, you should be reaching across the aisle. You should be learning from each other. So what are you going to do? Teach a one-day course on collaboration? Or are you actually going to push people into an experience where they get the benefit of being collaborative over the course of a learning program and come out? And now that, that sense of collaboration is so in their DNA that they're going to be collaborating. And in fact, when you take, we work with the top 20% in, you know, typically that director VP level group, um, 
when you take those people who are also the role models in the organization and they're changing their behavior, you start creating these cultural ripples. So mm-hmm. I always think about, you know, um, the, the a lot of the ways we think about making change in organization is in that, again, it's the military model, sort of like that. Let's cascade things down from the top and we're going to push it down into the organization. And for me, the reason why I called my second book, The Grassroots Leadership Revolution, was this idea of you know what, sometimes starting in the middle and expanding out or or starting at a more grassroots level in terms of shifting your leadership behavior and mindset um, is really powerful. Like I know in our programs, we engage the, the reporting manager in the process. That's very interesting because you have people going through a program who then start asking their manager different questions. Mm-hmm. And when we check in with the managers, the managers start getting curious. And I can't tell you the number of times we've had people say, um, you know, that my participants in this program, but how, how can I get in that program? You know, <laughs> and that, and to me, that's like the dream of, a, you know, yeah. in, in learning and development where you actually not want it to be a push, but a pull. And why is it? Because there's instant value. I always feel like people like you and I drink the Kool-Aid, right? We're all excited about learning and development. We, but I, you know, I feel like the average marketing manager, they're excited about marketing as they should be. That's what juices them. That's what, they don't, you know, the, this notion of building themselves up as a leader, like, you know, there's parts of it I'm sure that people are interested in, but they've got big jobs that they're dealing with. And so how mm-hmm. do we stream, you know, when we were talking about trends earlier, I mean, that is one of the big things is how we stream learning into people's day to day. How do we stream learning into um, the work that they're doing um, just on a, by the course of doing their work. And I think that's where coaching to me, I always say to people when you're doing coaching whether it's one-to-one or group or team what you're really allowing people to do is some strategic thinking time and what they should be doing in any of those conversations or sessions or whatever it is is moving something off their desk whether that's the ability to go have a conversation with somebody or it's truly like a, a job that they've been thinking about trying to tackle and couldn't get over some confidence hurdle to tackle it you are helping them get forward momentum. That's what coaching is all about at the essence. So I think in a time crunched, you know, we're just in such a time crunched period. And, you know, if you're not delivering instant value all the time and learning, I think, you know, what's the point? We've got, we've got finite um, amounts of time to grab people's attention. Speaking of finite time, uh, my penultimate question before we find out more where we can learn about you and the roundtable um, mm. is, is a question I was potentially loath to ask you, but I'm going to anyway, so <laughs> bear with me. And that is, uh, as I mentioned, you and I have been around the sun a few times. Uh, all of a sudden now in our um, rearview mirror are two generations and in front of us is obviously the boomers. And mm. so I'm curious, like, have you noticed any trends with how... Um, younger leaders are expecting, you know, their their leaders to be treated and or leaders that are of younger generations. What are they doing potentially differently that that we need to pay attention to? Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting to me. And as you, you know, you mentioned the Brandon Hall Award um, that we won with PepsiCo, and they happen to be a, the, a, one of the clients that I've worked with um, throughout that duration. So when I started, a lot of the people in that program were my age. They were Gen Xers, and you know now they've all kind of gone through. And now it's very much a millennial mm-hmm. crowd that I'm working with, and and Gen Z. And I think one of the, there's a couple of things that we've seen in terms of leadership. One, there is 
a much greater pull towards what I would describe as shared leadership amongst this group. Mm. They are much more collaborative. They are less command and control. And I think what's interesting about that, speaking as somebody who grew up in the command and control era, is that um, it looks different to what a lot of us are used to. And I think what's going to be an interesting um, piece over the next three years is how do we define what leadership is? Because I think it's going to look quite different than Mm. a boomer X leadership. I think it's going to be far more consensual, collaborative, which might feel slower, which I think is where we see a lot of friction points in organization these days. I also see a lot of those leaders not having a lot of energy and motivation to do sort of stepping out, leading type work. I mean, I'm going to say it this way. I think that um, one of the challenges that Gen Z, I think, is going to face is this need to Um, almost conform to groups um, because of a fear of cancel culture, right? Mm -hmm. When you hear, I've heard university professors talk about the fact that people don't debate ideas anymore in in lecture halls. Um, They're afraid to be outside. They might have the opinions, but they're not forcefully putting them out there. And Mm -hmm. I wonder about how is that going to be in organizations where you have to lead and take a stand. And I, I wonder if we're going to see fewer and fewer people interested in taking on leadership roles and interested in, to, in stepping into those roles is one thing I'm curious about. And I I, I do feel like there's this, uh, I was listening to somebody the other day, and I think it's not wrong. It's this sort of idea that what we have failed to do with this next generation of, um, you know, future graduates is teach them that it's okay to fail. And I see that a lot with the younger leaders I work with. Um, Organizations will say, we need to be more innovative. We need to take more risks. And yet when I peel back the layers of a lot of the folks that I work with and that we work with um, on our team, what we see a lot is this fear of failure. Um, This, you know, this almost a perfectionism need. And you know, I, again, I heard somebody say that, you know, parents have done a, a lousy job of uh, what we've in, inadvertently taught our kids is that failure isn't a good thing. And that, you know, everybody talks about the participation ribbon, but it's almost it almost goes beyond that. It's that, you know, if if you aren't successful, there's something that is the thing to be feared the most. And yet, you know, in organ, you know, in your early career, you have to take career risks. You have to try different things. You might not be successful, but that truly, to me, that's what leads you to your passion. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's going to be interesting. Organizations are going to have to redefine what, what leadership success looks like. And I do think, um, you know, the topics that we bring into our program are driven by the requests of the group. And over the last few years, I've seen topics move from See my, you know, being seen as a strategic thinker, influence to topics that are around confidence and mm. dealing with inner critic, and um, you know, ones that are that are more uh, internally focused. And so, um, yeah, I think, and I think this Gen X phenomenon. I don't know. I you maybe you heard it here first, and I'll be wrong, but I think we're going to see a a whole lot of very talented Gen Xers, you know, taking a big goodbye. And that's, that's going to be interesting. I think organizations are going to struggle with their leadership ranks. So they better be investing in them now. 
Well, I, uh, I can corroborate that. I was spending some time with the chief economist of conference board who mm. pointed out that uh, they have not seen an exodus of early retirements in the 50 to 60 range bracket, which technically are Xers mm. or at least the late mm. Xers um, than ever before. And so uh-huh. I do think you were on something, Glenn. Oh, my gosh. Listen, uh, where can we find more about Glenn Roberts McCabe and, of course, as the founder and president of The Roundtable? Well, you can come and find me on LinkedIn and you can find uh, The Roundtable at GoRoundtable.com. GoRoundtable.com is where you can find us. Glenn, you're a wonderful person, just a human being to the nth degree. Thank you for this and for the insights today. Uh, we kind of tackled almost three different threads. And again, your expertise is deep in all of them. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, hopefully we'll see you again here on the show. Dan, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. That's Glenn Roberts McCabe, founder and CEO of The Roundtable. Check everything that she does out. It's fantastic. And don't forget to pick up those two books. They'll be in the show notes. Uh, Once again, thanks for joining. Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract.